This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing an article from JAMA Open Network about the risks and benefits of co-prescribing buprenorphine and stimulants. So how are you doing, John? I'm doing great. How about you, Sonia? I'm doing fine. I'm excited to record this episode. We got to talk about this article live in our journal club, and I'm excited to share it with our listeners. Yeah, definitely. Anything exciting going on with you in terms of addiction medicine? Yes. As you know, the FDA continues to consider regulating flavored tobacco products. And as you mentioned previously, in June, the FDA ordered Juul, and I don't want to be a big advertiser for Juul, but Juul is the brand that's getting the most heat. The FDA ordered Juul to stop selling its products. And this week, they decided to let the product stay on the shelves while they continue to do more review. Since there's been a lot of concern about Juul being designed to appeal to teenagers, and because I have two teenagers of my own, I was just kind of curious about their current marketing in the middle of this controversy. So I went to their website, and it is so funny. All over their website, it says, Juul designed for adult smokers. And all the models in their photos are about 70 years old. The color scheme is black and chrome and sort of dark wood colored. It looks like something your grandpa would definitely want to get. So that's how they're trying to position themselves. But if you Google some of the previous images that got them in trouble, you can see they're all bright colors, sexy teenagers. They were running on the Cartoon Network and other venues that were designed for kids. So Obviously, right now they're trying to pretend that they're a smoking cessation tool for senior citizens, but I'm not so sure the uh, FDA is going to buy it. So are you insinuating that bubblicious tobacco products or nicotine products are not marketed to adults? John, this is a smoking cessation tool for adult smokers. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate (laughs) that update. I'm glad that they uh, got kind of woke with the time. So that's good. Yeah, so I'm interested to see how their advertising will change if they are given the green light to market their products the way they want. So let's talk about this article. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Okay. I think we have a really interesting article. I think it appeals to a lot of us kind of that practice addiction medicine. It's called Analysis of Stimulant Prescriptions and Drug-Related Poisonings Risk Among Persons Receiving Buprenorphine Treatment for Opioid Use Disorder. And as you said earlier, it's from JAMA Network Open from May 2022. So a little bit of background. Use of psychostimulants in patients with opioid use disorder, particularly methamphetamines, has increased from 2% to 13% between 2008 to 2017. Overdose deaths involving co-ingestion of opioids and stimulants has drastically risen in recent years. This has given rise to what is referred to as the fourth wave of the opioid epidemic. ADHD is estimated to occur in 20 to 25% of patients seeking treatment for opioid use disorder. So it's a very common medical comorbidity for the patients that we serve. ADHD is associated with lower prevalence of substance use disorder treatments, worse substance use treatment disorder outcomes, and higher rates of treatment attrition. Stimulants are currently considered first-line treatment for ADHD, and many of us that practice primary care know that stimulants outperform the other non-stimulant options for ADHD on a day-to-day basis. Stimulant prescription rates have increased in recent years from 5.6% to 6.1% of the general U.S. population, and that's actually from the CDC from 2015 to 2019, so massive increase in prescribing, and it's probably even further since that time frame. Stimulants do have potential for misuse and misabuse, which we do know. 
And data regarding stimulant use in patients with substance use disorder and ADHD up to this point has been very limited. And it's really limited to basically two major studies, one in 2006 that was mostly in a methadone maintenance program showing no relationship between stimulant use and illicit opioid use, and another one from 2017 that showed decreased risk of ED visits in patients with substance use disorder prescribed stimulants for either ADHD or off-label. For patients with opioid use disorder, treatment retention has been associated with decreased risk of adverse effects such as overdose or death. And recent evidence may indicate that patients with substance use disorder and ADHD may benefit from stimulants to both improve treatment of their underlying ADHD, but also to improve retention. So that's kind of the background of this study. Sonia, do you feel that uh, you kind of have these similar situations arise in your practice? Yeah. I mean, if I just think about my patients, I don't think 20 to 25% of them have ADHD, although I do have some patients who have opiate use disorder and ADHD, I don't see in my population that it's any higher than my general medical population. I will say that my patients with opiate use disorder, especially early on in treatment, are often interested in stimulants and many will ask me about stimulants, but I think it goes along with a general desire to take medications to treat their symptoms. They have always taken something to help them with whatever symptoms they experience. And often that's something that's been an illicit drug. And now that they're committed to not using illicit drugs, they cast around for some substitute that might give them a similar benefit. So a lot of patients ask me about it, but very few actually carry a diagnosis. How about you? Yeah, it's interesting. This comes up very, very frequently. And it's tough to say because I feel like the diagnosis of ADHD, it's but can be somewhat nebulous. It's funny in children. I'm a, a family physician. Unlike you, you're an internist. And I, I do treat children. And, you know, we have very uh, set standards for diagnosis of ADHD in children. Basically, Vanderbilt assessment, the criteria is very kind of well known. The medications were designed for short periods of time, like uh, getting people through grade school, high school and into college. And then, you know, cessation of that medication when school ends. So it's somewhat different. And it's interesting now that, you know, we have this larger population of adult patients on these medications and the ADHD testing, to be quite honest, it seems like it's probably has a lot of uh, positives. I'm not sure if it really kind of is that sensitive a testing result at all. I do feel like, you know, maybe the 25% is something representative depending upon how you're diagnosing it. Yeah, but this comes up very frequently. And it's a very difficult discussion because you feel like these medications could also be abused if, if you know, if a patient has a substance use disorder to opioids or alcohol. Could they misuse these medications? It's, it's a tough scenario versus does the person try to self-treat with their drug use? And I don't know. I think we all struggle with this to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I thought about this. I have a new patient on buprenorphine who I started working with a few weeks ago. And this patient actually said at the beginning, I have ADHD, but I really don't want to take any medications that are habit forming. I don't want to take any controlled medications Mm. for it. So we went through a few options that were, you know, used for treatment of ADHD, but were non-habit forming. And she had had success with one of them in the past. So we started that instead. But she's the first patient who has ever specifically requested non-habit forming medications for ADHD there's a real sense that these medicines are very safe. Everybody takes them, including children. So why would we be concerned about them, even in a patient with a history of substance use disorder? Yeah, it's a million dollar question. 
So the question in this trial is kind of one, do prescription stimulants have an association with increase in drug-related poisonings? And number two, do prescription stimulants have an association with buprenorphine treatment retention, which is associated with decreased risk of death? So going through this study, the design of it was it was a retrospective recurrent event cohort study with a case crossover design. There was secondary analysis of administrative claims data from IBM, MarketScan, commercial, and multi-state Medicaid databases from January 1st, 2006 to December 31st, 2016. In terms of participants, there was 22,946 individuals aged 12 to 64 with a diagnosis of opioid use disorder prescribed buprenorphine greater than one day and experienced one-plus drug-related poisonings. And this is basically during insurance enrollment only. And these were the only patients that were included in analysis. They included patients that were only receiving buprenorphine in the setting of the detox center. So no kind of inpatient treatment. This was purely outpatient treatment of their opioid use disorder. And the primary outcomes were drug-related poisonings. And this was only measured via ED visits or inpatient hospitalizations in network for this insurance carrier and buprenorphine treatment retention. Data was collected and basically they did person days. So they did person days with or without buprenorphine and person days with or without stimulant use. And stimulants included amphetamines, methylphenidate, and lisdexamphetamine in this trial. It also included data collection regarding drug-related poisonings with an index event, which would be a poisoning event with analysis occurring a year prior and up to a year after the index event buprenorphine treatment duration, so initiation of treatment until a gap of 45 days without any claims. And this included both buprenorphine claim, but also a claim for any psychological treatment intervention. So many patients are uh, kind of referred to treatment without medication assistance. So it actually was very inclusive of that, which is kind of unique to the study. Covariate analysis include time, benzodiazepine use, and statin use. And I think it was interesting this is a case crossover design, so each patient was their own control, so there was no like demographic or comorbidity analysis. But I love the fact that they did this statin use as kind of a covariate analysis because it basically showed who's actually has kind of this healthy adherer bias. So patients that take statin were more likely to be engaged in their care. So it kind of selected your kind of most engaged population away from your less engaged population. And as a primary care provider, I just love the fact that anyone's talking about using a statin in any setting. So I love that. Go statins. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) any article not hating on a statin, I love it. So uh, statistical analysis, we did odds ratio. And we did that because of the rarity of primary events, which were overdose events in this analysis. And we did secondary analysis for two time periods. One was two time periods between opioid potency, background opioid disorder death rates, but also they did age, basically ages 12 to 29 versus age 30 to 64. And it's interesting, there's basically was a correlation between on and off-label use of stimulants between those two age groups. People that were younger were much more likely to be prescribed a stimulant uh, due to an on-label reasons such as ADHD and patients over age 30 to 64, they were more likely to have kind of an off-label use of stimulants. And just keep in mind, when you're looking at this study, it's sort of like going back in time. This was a time period where we were actually looking at stimulants for kind of treatment of things like methamphetamine use disorder, but also cocaine use disorder. There's a thought that possibly these could be beneficial. Okay, so let me make sure I understand. This looked at insurance database information 
and it looked at whether prescribing stimulants, so patients on buprenorphine, if they got stimulants, did they have a higher rate of overdoses or poisonings? And did they have better retention in treatment. Is that correct? Correct. Those are the two main outcomes. Just keep in mind, though, that it's an insurance database. So they only kind of were able to analyze drug-related poisonings based upon office, like ED or inpatient visits. So like, you know, that is a subgroup of poisonings. Great. So the question always becomes like, is this trial valid? So a couple things to say here, you know, it was funded by research grants from the NIH, SAMHSA, the St. Louis Research Institute, the Center from Administrative Data Research, and Washington University Institute of Clinical and Translational Sciences. So not a bunch of industry bias here. It was a retrospective recurrent event cohort study with case crossover design. So it was a non-randomized controlled trial. So it cannot control for uh, any time-bearing co-founders, but it, it was kind of relatively good, though, just the fact that each patient was their kind of own baseline. RCT would definitely be an improvement, but, you know, as I said, they compared each person to themselves. So that's a pretty good control. Sample size was very large, 22,946 individuals. And that actually was uh, 13,778,567 person days. So very large trial. The study did not include uh, indication for stimulant prescription, uninsured patients, patients that lost insurance, patients without a drug-related poisoning, and patients with an out-of-ED hospital poisoning. So that's a pretty big exclusion criteria. I think most of us that do addiction treatment, we do come across this problem. However, I would say that when you take out uninsured patients, patients without insurance, patients that lost insurance, patients that haven't had an overdose during the period in question, and patients that have an out-of-hospital overdose, I think that actually is a very small subgroup of those patients. I did think that it was interesting that the rate of ADHD here was exceeded the or was not in excess of the stimulant prescription. So in this study, 10.8% of patients received stimulants, but only 5% of patients had ADHD. And as you know, ADHD is the primary on-label indication or FDA-approved indication for stimulants, the other one being narcolepsy. And I think that that's a very rare condition. So really, it seems like most of these were prescribed off-label. Study data was collected from 2006 to 2016. I think that's interesting because it basically was the pre-fentanyl era, which started in 2015. What do you think about that, Sonia? I think it was a good study. I always take this kind of insurance database study type with a grain of salt because it doesn't necessarily prove causality, just a correlation. And the data in these studies is only as good as the doctors who coded it. So like you said, 10.8% of people got stimulant prescriptions, but only 5% had a diagnosis of ADHD documented. So the other 5%, do they not have ADHD or did the doctor not write it down? Or did the ADHD come from some other place on the chart? that didn't make it into the insurance database, you know, on some PDF somewhere. So I always worry a little bit about insurance database-based studies. But, I mean, I think it was pretty good. Yeah, it is interesting you say that, right? Because I feel like, I think a theme of addiction medicine, in terms of the research, at least, a lot of it does come from insurance database data. And I, we're not going to talk about tonight, but um, another study that we're going to talk about, you know, they actually do reference the fact that it's, it's relatively well validated at this point that 
you know, ICD coding is not has a poor positive predictive value in terms of opioid use disorder. So I think that the coding and reality are not kind of always matching up. So that is a huge limitation, right? It's like data capture. It's only dependent upon how the data entry is occurring. And it doesn't seem like it's correlating greatly. Well, I think that's the problem with addiction research is it seems to me difficult to carry out randomized controlled trials, or at least ones that are well, well conducted. I think it's hard to hang on to the patients. So you get a lot of patients lost to follow up. And I also think, honestly, in addiction medicine, there's not as much funding. You know, these companies are, you know, that have a lot of money to do big cardiovascular medication trials. They put a ton of money into those. And I'm not sure the same kind of money exists for studying interventions, you know, for methamphetamine use disorder yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the cost of these medications has started to decrease. And I think that you're right. There's not this huge industry funding for these studies. I definitely agree with that. So the question is like kind of what are the results? So kind of interestingly here, when you look at it, like I said, the big thing about the demographics table that I would take away is that ADHD rate was only 5%. However, stimulant rate in this study was 10.8%. It was substantially higher than actually ADHD rate. I also thought it was interesting to point out that in this study, 57.6% of patients at some point did have a prescription for benzodiazepines. And that's a very high amount of benzodiazepines for a population with a substance use disorder, at least in my opinion. Interestingly, in terms of drug-relating poisons, you know, stimulant use was actually associated with a basically a mild and very mild increase in stimulant-related poisonings. However, Buprenorphine use was associated with a very large reduction in substance-related poisonings, and benzodiazepines, not surprisingly, was also associated with a very large increase in substance-related poisoning. And actually, when you look at this data side-by-side, basically, there was actually an improvement in terms of decreasing risk of overdose in terms of patients treated with buprenorphine versus those without that had also receive stimulants in terms of overdose rate. And so stimulant treatment days were actually associated with a 36% decreased odds of buprenorphine treatment attrition, which was much greater than the risk of overdose in people treated with stimulants. So slight harm with stimulant use in terms of overdoses. However, the benefit in terms of treatment retention was substantially higher than the slight harm that was noted in the study. Does that make sense? Or Sonia, how do you feel about that? I think it makes sense. I mean, as I said, I don't have a lot of patients on stimulants and most of my patients on buprenorphine, they would only consider getting on stimulants or I would only consider prescribing stimulants once they were very stable from an addiction point of view. So in the early days when they're relapsing, using illicit drugs, uh, missing visits, I wouldn't really start them on stimulants because I wouldn't start any patient on stimulants in that situation. And then once they're stable on the buprenorphine, I've had a few patients start stimulants and they did great. Like I haven't seen anybody transition from using prescribed stimulants to some sort of adverse outcome from illicit stimulants. They've all done fine. So it correlates with what I see and anything that helps people stay on the buprenorphine longer will reduce overdoses, especially now in the era of fentanyl. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like that's a spoiler alert, right? I mean, I think the big theme of this is anything that uh, improves buprenorphine retention, improves patient outcomes, right? So kind of going to this kind of particular study, will the results help me in patient care? 
you know, I am a primary care physician. I treat patients with both substance use disorder and ADHD on a regular basis. I'm not going to lie. I've been doing substance use disorder treatment at this point for about five years. And I think early on, this was somewhat of a bugaboo for me. However, I've kind of embraced it as I've gone along and kind of matured as a doctor. And I think it is something to consider. ADHD is an incredibly common coexisting diagnosis in patients with substance use disorder. You know, the literature cites 20 to 25 percent of patients with substance use disorder often have ADHD as a comorbidity. You know, I think the study circumferentially addresses the true question regarding safety and efficacy of these medications in patients with substance use disorder. But I think it's important that the study does show me that patients that I do treat that have an appropriate indication for this will stay with me longer and they'll decrease the risk of dying. That That's a really powerful thing to take away from this. So I think that, you know, overall underlying theme, the study shows that there are harm of stimulants prescriptions, as we always knew, so slight increased risk of, of poisoning. However, it's, it's drastically outweighed by the benefits of buprenorphine retention in this population. And I think that my takeaway as a doctor, and, and Sonia, you may feel differently, but I feel like, you know, as a doctor that treats ADHD and a doctor that also treats substance use disorder, patients that I have a clear diagnosis of ADHD that also have a substance use disorder diagnosis, I think I'm going to sleep a little better at night when I do prescribe them these medications, these stimulants to help them. I think you're kind of treating the two conditions simultaneously. And I know that actually that may help kind of both conditions. So it makes me feel better. I feel like I, I like the fact that the study tells me that, you know, what I'm doing is probably the right thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that the study basically doesn't show any net harm from prescribing stimulants to patients who are on buprenorphine, whether or not they have a documented diagnosis of ADHD, actually. Like you said earlier, adult ADHD is such a nebulous and hard to diagnose condition. And as I'm sure many of our listeners will experience, trying to get an official ADHD evaluation from a psychologist can be can be difficult. There's a long wait. Insurance might not cover it. So it's sometimes hard to really nail down that diagnosis. But yeah, I'm happy to know that there's no increase risk of death and harm in this population if they do need stimulants. So yeah, it gives me a little more confidence as well. Yeah, maybe it's me just being a little bit more of a prude with this group, but I do send them for ADHD testing. And, you know, it's interesting. Most of the time they do test positive. I think that maybe 5% of the time I have a negative test result. And that does make me feel better at the end of the day. And I'm not sure if like the listeners feel differently, but, or how they're coming across the diagnosis of adult ADHD. I know children, there's very validated screening questionnaires for this, but um, for your adult patients, what are you doing with this group of patients? And, you know, how are you coming to the diagnosis? Do you feel confident with that? I think the one nice thing is most insurance carriers at this point have kind of forced us into getting the formal testing, which kind of makes it kind of easy for me. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So just a question back to your earlier patient, what non-stimulant prescription did you give them for their ADHD that was helpful? We started with atomoxetine, which has been very helpful. So we had a follow-up today on that and That's great. they said it was working great. It's interesting. I feel like I, I just can't find a group of patients that like love those medicines. I mean, I think, Thanks. you know, we all know like, well, bupropion, atomoxetine, venlafaxine is off label for ADHD. For the more hyperactive patients, clonidine, guanfacine, those can be useful. I feel they're very difficult, though, to get a patient to feel the same kind of feeling in terms of improvement. And um, one of my psychiatry colleagues was very quick to remind me that, you know, 
if we're looking at an evidence-based perspective, none of those have candle to stimulants in terms of ADHD symptom control. Yeah. And I think the stimulants do make people feel better. And that's a hard thing to talk about with my patients because they'll say, oh, I tried an Adderall or I tried a medication and it made me feel so much better. I think I should go on it. And I can't deny that taking stimulants will make people feel better, more focused, more productive. That's partly what they were designed for. So I don't want to tell the patient you're wrong. It doesn't help you. But it's more about what's our long term goal here? And do you really have a diagnosis? And do we really need to have you take another medicine? Or is there some other way to do whatever it is you want to do? Yeah, definitely. Well, this is fun. Thanks, Sonia. Thank you for presenting that article. And thank you to our listeners for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. Remember that the best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, you can email us at addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at addictionmedjc. And if you want to hear your comment in your own voice on the air, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us. Our original theme music was performed and composed by Benjamin Kennedy. Our audio editing is by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day.